This is your host, Michael Phillips Moskowitz, and this is the fifth and final episode of Speculative Futures. Before we wrap, there are a couple of key issues that we still need to address, and some early reactions that we'll share. Remember, when you even mention the word Israel, it can, and very often does, trigger passionate reactions, not just among English-speaking audiences, but among all people and all languages everywhere on planet Earth. That's why it's essential to say, state, and really emphasize the following several points. One, everyone deserves the right to lead their lives safely, freely, and independently, with honor and with dignity. I fully acknowledge that this is easy to say or state from a position of power, but not so easily achieved from a position of weakness. We've tried to be hyper-aware and deeply sensitive to the feelings of our Palestinian listeners. Everyone deserves the freedom to safely practice their faith and to fully realize their own unique potential. Many people would argue this has not been possible under the occupation. We understand that. Number two, we know this topic triggers pain. And when one person suffers, the entire world suffers. Some attribute this axiom to 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Others consider it a Jewish belief or a maxim embraced by Muslims. Whatever its origins, we celebrate this principle in all of its appearances and incantations. And we believe that when it comes to pain, to suffering, to trauma, loss, indignity, or injustice, no one is entitled to a monopoly. We also believe that pain comparisons, like comparing the Holocaust to the Nakba or to slavery, these are fruitless, they're unfair, and they're practically impossible, not to mention counterproductive. Accepting that there is legitimate widespread and generational pain between and among all parties in this seemingly insoluble conflict, and resisting comparisons to trauma elsewhere throughout human history, is more important than ranking whose pain is worse. It's everyone's individual and collective responsibility to help correct, heal, and remedy the wound. We believe that. I believe that. Number three, these ideas or prospective approaches are put forward in the spirit of a provocation. They're not singular answers, and they're certainly not the only approaches to consider. The voices you heard, and will still hear in this episode, are not the only voices. And number four, we know there may be, and already have been, strong reactions to many of these ideas. We also expect that, quote, fruit of the poison tree is going to be a critique leveled against us. Some will argue that this entire project is predicated on an illegitimacy, that a so-called bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Well, the fact remains that Israel exists as a national, political, and cultural entity, and whatever its failings are, it is not wrong to imagine and hope for a future in which Israel can exist as a place of peaceful and prosperous coexistence for everyone. Now, on to potential solutions. In a study conducted by Nadim Rohana and Daniel Bartal on psychological dynamics of intractable ethno-national conflicts, they found the following. One, a genuine resolution has to satisfy the needs of both parties engaged in the intractable ethno-national conflict in a way that is acceptable to the mainstream of both societies. They have to accept it. At the same time, it is obvious that any attempt at peacefully resolving this intractable conflict has to take into consideration its psychological foundations and use psychological principles in the process of its resolution. The parties in conflict also, at a minimum, have to change their beliefs about avoiding contact with and negotiating with the enemy. But this is only the beginning. Successful resolutions, 
especially of intractable ethno-national conflicts, requires profound change of beliefs among leaders and between negotiators, as well as by the society at large to support a negotiated agreement. We've already seen what happens when these critical pieces are missing. The missing piece, P-I-E-C-E, and the missing piece, P-E-A-C-E, of the last 20 years is partly, if not largely, attributable to this lack of public support. And finally, even when the two groups can agree on a pragmatic solution to a problem, the agreement might be blocked if it somehow legitimizes the other side's national narrative and, by implication, negates one's own. So, this is helpful, and we know the goal. In fact, the yard markers have been known for some time. As far back as 1998, which you can think of as peak Oslo, Herbert C. Kelman, writing in the Journal of Palestine Studies, argued that a sustainable peace required at least four key elements. One, negotiations based on a two-state solution as a final outcome. Two, a Palestinian state that is sovereign, viable, and secure. Three, a Palestinian state that is considered the only mutually acceptable vehicle for providing citizenship to Palestinian people. And four, mutual acknowledgement of one another's nationhood and humanity. This is why it's time to bring back Rabbi Radley Hirschfield. There's no way to prove, for example, the Talmudic teaching that every six feet one walks in the land of Israel is the fulfillment of a mitzvah, of a religious obligation. It's because you buy into the specialness of the land and the system of religious obligations that every six feet you go, wow. So I think we have to start with the dual awareness of a heaping dose of humility about the claims that we make and then real honesty about the passion we feel. And at this point, it makes sense to turn back to Nurit Schnabel from Tel Aviv University. It's not a bad thing to have national pride, but, but my national pride does not depend on land. It depends on what we do. I do see Israeli Palestinians, I see them as my students. I feel that they endorse this view that they have uh, pride in their, in their Palestinian identity, but at the same time, this Palestinian identity is not necessarily antagonistic to the Israeli identity. And, and I feel the same about myself. Now, it might be worth pausing for a moment to remember the order of the series. Episode one, the introduction. Episode two, treating trauma at scale. Episode three, creating a technocracy. And episode four, treating Israel's arable soil for spiritual endeavor. We deliberately placed the economy in the middle precisely because there are levers to deploy that can directly improve the prospects of success in those other two fields or categories. And here's how. If digital goods and services, or digital currencies and digital transactions, start to play a more prominent role in Israel, doubling or tripling their percentage until accounting for fully 50% of GDP or more in the next 15 years, there's an opportunity to incent or direct smarter spending using the blockchain or the distributed ledger to make the availability of services more available to people everywhere throughout society. We don't have enough time in this episode to walk and talk through the minutia, but here's the basic idea. In the United States, the Treasury Department uses interest rates as a policy tool to protect and secure economic growth. Yes, that's a gross oversimplification, but it's certainly part of what they do. 
And in Jerusalem, this responsibility belongs to the Bank of Israel. In the not-too-distant future, the bank or a similar body could use tools and procedures lifted or loosely inspired by fiscal policy to help guide, shape, and influence hyper-targeted sectors of the economy like healthcare, food policy, food security, and even integrated community building projects. How? Using blockchain technology and newly minted cryptocurrencies. No, this is not a fad, and it's not science fiction, and it doesn't require hand-waving, even though you obviously can't see my hand. This isn't hype. If the Bank of Israel introduced a new coin, or a new currency instead of cash reserves, loans, bonds, or other conventional tools to fund the healthcare system, it could create a series of cascading benefits. Imagine if the government airdropped tokens to encourage mining, exchange, commerce, conversion. It could create new liquidity mechanisms to pay social service providers, like therapists, psychiatrists, social workers, or in some cases, remunerate spiritual practitioners, guides, yogis, and clergy who work with vulnerable populations to make more services available to more people when the moment warrants it. And we're not talking about more ER docs or nurses during rocket raids or more national guards to help with vaccine rollouts. This is about an entire kaleidoscope of care providers activated like Uber fleets in a manner reminiscent of rate spikes based on demand during concerts or snowstorms, except this is sort of a crypto Uber model for health. The difference is that people wouldn't be priced out of services like with Uber, so this is better than Uber. People would actually be encouraged to use these services, which might otherwise prove too pricey or unavailable due to delays or too remote given their geography, particularly when people need them most. This is the sort of scheme or instrument that's possible if you embrace a more aggressive approach to edge tech and crypto tools, or prove favorably disposed to at least consider this technocratic model. Now, we do acknowledge the risks, but the benefits are so significant that we can't help but advocate for Israel leaning into its tech surplus and fully embracing its own native tech advantages. So basically, what we're talking about is a health coin whose supply is controlled or issued by the state, which can be swapped for health services, but also has an exchange rate into other tokens or currencies. This is a way to more dynamically market and manage health services while also ensuring that people have access to it because you can always centrally airdrop more tokens from the central government. But you have the mechanisms of token economics as part of the package. Now we admit, to encourage mining is complicated. Will it be proof of work, a crypto mechanism? Will it be based on Ethereum or linked to another pre-existing blockchain? Or will it be its own blockchain? In which case, it would probably be more contemporary to use a proof of stake mechanism but we don't need to get into those minutiae today. Otherwise, it's again, in the spirit of everything else we've done, a provocation. It's a new approach that the government might entertain and explore at considerably greater depth to do more good, to meet more needs for more people. We think it requires real incentives, tools, and loops like these to lower or eliminate the socio-psychological barriers to resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
Public education alone can't quickly change beliefs about Israelis and Palestinians' national goals, or notions of Israeli military and moral superiority, or the problematic image of Arabs in Israeli society. This will take education, and it certainly will take time, but it will take more than that too. Author Yohanan Soroff, in a book entitled The Palestinian Perspective, identifies structural barriers to peace, the uniqueness of the conflict, geographical dispersion of inter-Arab intervention, the appetite or demand to remedy historic injustice, religious barriers, inter-organizational rivalry, the sanctity of armed resistance, tension between loss of identity and achievement of independence, the erosion of the two-state solution, and cultural barriers, like defeatism, a culture of denial, internal divisions and rifts, like Hamas and PLO, rhetoric and slogans, and loss of faith in leadership. These are all very significant impediments. But that's why the critical preparation work needs to occur on and along the three lines we've identified. Spirituality, economy, and trauma, which gets us to the grand bargain that we think it might require to put these three pieces into play. This won't be, nor will it require, the so-called deal of the century. But it might help smooth, steward, or even slowly restart the arduous negotiations within Israel, which still need to take place. The grand bargain with the Arab communities. As of today, April 11th, 2021, the election results from March remain, well, much as they were in the last round in 2020, with Bibi narrowly in the lead and with only very narrow possibilities for constructing a governing coalition. Who knows how long it'll take to get to 61 seats or more, and who will be in the coalition and who won't, or even how long this government will last. But what's interesting is that if the magician Bibi Netanyahu succeeds yet again, putting even David Copperfield to shame. His right-wing coalition may depend on Arab legislators for a majority. That's remarkable and unprecedented. And it might even be what Israel needs to take critical steps forward at the level of the Knesset to better represent the will of all its citizens, including the neediest, the most neglected, and the traditionally marginalized. So here's what's important to know or at least what's important to think about and how a grand bargain just might work. Israel is a diverse cultural mosaic, Sephardi and Ashkenazi, Jewish and Arab, Christian and Muslim, Druze and Bedouin, Baha'i. And this is a tragically shortened summary. Encounters do take place between them. Intermingling occurs, but real integration, sharing, trust is rare. But there is maybe one exception where this does occur. In the case of medical care, life-saving treatments at the hospital. When visiting a clinic or emergency care facility in Israel, there's a high likelihood that you'll be treated by an Arab doctor or nurse, not by a Jew. There's a high likelihood that a Jew will be treated by an Arab. And in many cases, the reverse, like a no-questions-asked medical camp run by the Israeli military on the border with Syria. In these places, anyone from the Syrian civil war, civilian, rebel, or even ISIS fighter, can come and receive medical treatment with no questions asked. Is it enough to change the opinion of an entire people engaged in a painful conflict? No way. But it can certainly help one person think differently about a people they were predisposed to hate. And it might someday change how their children feel too. This, in essence, is how trust is built. Not at the negotiating table, but in hospitals, at vegetable markets, 
in schools and at fairs, exhibitions, or in new places of work. It requires organic daily interactions to repair the foundation for a fragile or divided society. And it requires the removal of both artificial and real prejudice. It requires trust. On his recent 100th birthday, former U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz reflected on trust, stating that it was the most important thing throughout his career. Quote, trust is the coin of the realm. When trust was in the room, whatever room that was, the family room, the school room, the locker room, the office room, well, he keeps naming rooms. Good things happened. The key for establishing peace moving forward may have less to do with ambitious land swaps or shared water aquifers or even tiered administration of the Temple Mount and more to do with everyday interactions between people that will fortify and enrich a foundation of trust. Political agreements and arrangements await, but the recent opening offered by the Abraham Accords may serve as a catalyst to advance a long-stalled peace process. Now we admit, peace between Israel and the PA, or even between Israel and Gaza, is a separate matter. But we're focusing on instruments to advance the needs and interests of Israel's own citizens, Christians, Druze, Jewish, and Muslim. And Arab Israelis are first on our list of communities that deserve a far better deal. That does not mean we're ignoring the welfare of those living in Gaza or in Area A of the West Bank. But this series tries to envision new realities and future facts on the ground under Israel's own sovereignty, which we hope will inform and ultimately improve the lives of Palestinians throughout the West Bank and Gaza. A political offer. It's not yet about a peace deal, but about a new social contract to drive and deliver broader participation and representation and benefits there are already plenty of proposals on the table, we know. There are even pieces of legislation, drafted and unpassed. But they're there. What isn't there, at least not yet, is sufficient political will or clout. In the last Knesset, there were just 17 Arab members in a body of 120. And remember, Arabs still constitute one in every five Israelis. Increasing representation by seat number isn't the answer. But if Arab parties started operating differently, there might be different outcomes. Can they beat other parties at their own game? Ari Grudnitsky, a researcher at the Israel Democracy Institute, said it was notable that the platforms of Arab parties made scant reference to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Lawmakers recognize there's a growing Arab middle class of pharmacists, doctors, and programmers who are increasingly keen to integrate into the Israeli mainstream. But Israeli Arabs, even if they continue to crystallize as a civil community, distinct from the Palestinian people outside of Israel, maintain an identity primarily grounded in the Palestinian national narrative. For this reason, Arab society's attitude toward the State of Israel will likely be influenced by relations between the State of Israel and the Palestinian people in its entirety. Ephraim Levy published an important paper on this topic in 2018. He argued that a national strategic change in Israel policy toward its own Arab population, designed to bring about their social, economic, and political integration, could strengthen their sense of belonging to the state as citizens with equal rights and obligations. Making it a national priority would also help ensure a commitment by the Arab community to abide by and maintain the rules of democracy and social consensus and deepen their involvement in society and the economy. Such a policy must be based on recognizing that full and fundamental civil equality is a mutual interest of both the state and Arab society, on the one hand, and the understanding that the national identity and legitimate interests of the Jewish majority will be maintained on the other. 
it must be characterized by a coherent and long-term overall vision that charges the state with positive obligations in the realm of social rights, such as education and health services, enables obstacles to be overcome, and ensures an equitable division of public resources. That's a lot to digest, so let's take a quick pause. An economic offer. Putting FDI, otherwise known as foreign direct investment, to productive and intelligent use is one thing, particularly from the Gulf, where capital reserves are large and now publicly permitted to flow into Israel. And already there is an enormous appetite for Israeli tech, trade, and investment opportunities. But a stronger case must be made for more talent. People on the ground should be the target, not just investment properties in Jerusalem or IP, licensing and M&A activity. We need people to serve as the underpinnings and champions of these relationships to help cement them. IT can't just be restricted to the movement of capital across the region. It must come in the form of vocational training centers, not job programs, but accelerators. It must come in the form of R&D, senior hires, and service centers. People are the missing piece at the moment, and people need to benefit directly. This has to be part of any grand economic bargain. Of course, another approach is by creating new facts on the ground, not just subsidies or scholarships or even tax breaks, but relevant and visible improvements and investments in the quality of life in Arab villages. Better clinics, better roads, better gardens and kindergartens. Even tourist-boosting art activations, which could be speedily and quietly executed, like Banksy's Hotel in Bethlehem. Well, you could imagine pop-up restaurants with local staff, led by chefs of international renown, funded by international donors. You can imagine pop-up hotels in season, orchestrated with the same speed and ingenuity of art fairs like Spring Break. If you don't know it, check it out online. It's pretty amazing. They do this already. They're experts in creating magnetic experiences that you just need to see and need to attend. And with tourist traffic to Israel, at least in non-COVID times occurring in record high numbers over the summer, this could open up an entirely new part of the interior. Education. It's actually about integration. We have to start laying the foundation for reconciliation in the national curriculum, which I admit is easier said than done. The Ministry of Education is political and politicized. But consider the evidence. Again, Professor Nuri Chnabel of Tel Aviv University's School of Psychological Sciences, working in partnership with Dr. Samer Halabi, conducted an experiment several years ago designed to reveal the principles that characterize relational dynamics between aggressors and victims. Half of the participants, which included both Jews and Palestinians, were given fictitious academic articles to read in which historical proof was presented showing both sides in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict possess an aggressive identity and a victimhood identity. The other participants received a neutral text which did not support the concept of inclusive collective victimhood. The results did not surprise the researchers. In fact, it encouraged them. According to Schnabel, quote, we saw that the shared victim-perpetrator identity increased the tendency to be generous and conciliatory toward the other side. A shared identity like this is the conceptual basis underlying such Israeli-Palestinian organizations as the Bereaved Families Forum, where bereaved families from both sides meet and try to advance peace and understanding, which neutralizes the competition over the victim role and allows greater openness and generosity, or combatants for peace. 
in which ex-combatants and soldiers from both sides work together to promote an open dialogue between the two people, which creates an affinity on the basis of a shared identity of victimization. Israeli newspaper Haaretz picked up the story in 2019. Quote, we found that both Jews and Palestinians who read the fictitious article, proving that their side had suffered more, showed a greater willingness for conciliation with the other side. External recognition of victimization of their group was a response to a strong need for their suffering to be seen and acknowledged. Well, talk helps. It's not sufficient, but it does promote healing and protection. It's still going to take an awful lot of face time, stewardship, education and training. But the good news is, as evidenced by the aforementioned organizations, efforts are at least underway. Now for an even tougher category, the ultra-Orthodox. Arab Israelis aren't the only citizens that need more support, or the only ones that need to be woven into a more equitable part of the national fabric. The ultra-Orthodox remain a separate class, a separate political bloc, and a sticking point for many secular Israelis. But remember, these are not a purely monastic order or a priestly class. They're political. And at the end of the day, they make deals. So if money is an issue, or if money is the issue, we could make a deal. So let's make a deal. Military service. Let's increase the participation of ultra-religious in the army or national service. Policymakers and academics assert that the practical skills acquired during military service are instrumental for ultra-Orthodox men in particular to help break the circle of poverty. This belief is informed by the Army's proven ability to train and assimilate recruits from various backgrounds and undereducated populations for professional lives after the military. Moreover, evidence from abroad suggests that ultra-Orthodoxy is not structurally alien to productive economic participation. Ultra-Orthodox men outside of Israel enter the labor force after spending three to five years in yeshivas. In Canada, 80% of working-age ultra-Orthodox men are employed, and the figures are similar for the U.S. and the U.K. Ultra-Orthodox leaders oppose the idea of mandatory service, fearing that conscription might promote entrance to the labor market and the world outside of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, which is liable to damage the unique identity of the next Haredi generation. But experts who study this issue closely and do not belong to ultra-Orthodox circles, cite qualitative evidence that IDF practices designed to accommodate religious needs by crafting special arrangements for religious soldiers change the impact of army service on these conscripts. Some concessions have already been made and new options implemented. For instance, the number of Haredim conscripted into the army began to increase significantly in 2007 when the government adopted the Tal Law. And two, the civilian service program was designed as an alternative to military service for Haredi men, and draftees could work in fields such as healthcare, welfare, education, environmental protection, and security fields like fire, ambulance, and prison service, as well as the Israeli police. This program has promise. It just needs to continue and expand. Some ask, okay, well, how will Haredi and Arab Israeli citizens, at least those who aren't currently participating in the economy, gain access to these new opportunities, particularly if they don't have a solid or any secular education. Not to mention the fact that many lack a social network suitable to career advancement. It's a fine critique, but we believe that integrating these populations is an urgent national priority, a program as critical to the basic functioning of the country as border security or access to clean water. And in the case of these two particular communities, 
Subsidies that are all awarded to vulnerable communities could be repackaged as challenge grants, tuition vouchers, and scholarships. There can be additional tax breaks or incentives provided to business owners based on graduation rates from these new vocational programs. And in addition, employers could be offered tax breaks for hiring these specific graduates with placement guarantees or protocol inspired directly by the success of American-style boot camps like General Assembly, Flatiron School, and others. These reciprocally beneficial industry-to-academy bonds will only deepen, strengthen, and accelerate over time. Now, to be clear, this isn't about a few bright or talented students from Haredi or Arab-Israeli families. It's about entirely new frontiers of opportunity for underrepresented communities. It's about broader participation in the labor force and in society. And it won't happen overnight. We know it can't. But if you want an example of how this kind of change can take place, and pretty dramatically, even over a single generation, consider a relevant story from the U.S. Kamala Harris was born during the height of the Civil Rights Movement in 1964. Under what has become a rather famous anecdote, she was a student in one of the early elementary school classes which was bused to integrate all white elementary schools in Oakland, California. Kamala would go on to attend Howard University, a historically black college founded on the heels of the Civil War, in large part to educate freed slaves. And she's now the vice president. Generational change does not mean that every person will end up becoming vice president. But Kamala's story shows how much can change in even a single generation. And what about the Palestinians? Won't this further widen or accelerate the gap in income and health outcomes and living standards for them? Well, when we think of the Palestinians, we're thinking of people living in areas A, B, and C of the West Bank, plus Gaza. These are people that we hope will someday soon be living in a sovereign and independent state, not a suzerainty, recognized by the international community. We're certainly not assuming or envisioning that these territories will remain permanently steeped in a position of status interregnum, or that, God forbid, they get subsumed by Israel as part of a one-state solution, which, to be very clear, is something only very few people want. Their right to prosper matters, and not in the future, today. And this is where technological leapfrogging enters the mix. Dave Chappelle recently teased a similar issue in one of his specials, castigating Trump for trying to bring Chinese jobs back to America. We're gonna play it for you now if we get the rights. If we don't, I'll summarize. Americans don't wanna be making iPhones. Leave those jobs in China. Palestinians don't need 20th century jobs. They need 21st century opportunities. And technological leapfrogging constitutes a major advantage. As defined by Davison, Vogel, Harris, and Jones in an article written in 2000, Technological leapfrogging is the adoption or implementation of newer, up-to-date technologies in an application area in which at least the previous version or generation of that technology was never properly or broadly deployed. An example, the mobile phone. That's a leapfrog technology. It enabled many developing countries to skip the fixed-line solutions of the 20th century and move directly into the preferred platform, or forgive me, format of the 21st. And they quickly moved into the lead. Many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, witnessed cellular penetration much more rapidly and broadly than in the U.S. Another example is the adoption of solar energy technologies, particularly in developing countries. They were able, and are able, to avoid repeating the mistakes of highly industrialized societies, which established a costly and toxic energy infrastructure based on fossil fuels. Leapfroggers have been able to jump directly into the solar age. Traditional domains of employment in Palestine are not returning. Farming, 
textile production, quarrying, food processing, and olive wood carving aren't the future. That's why we should focus on and vigorously support new enterprises in and across Agriculture 4.0, future farming, precision agriculture, and robotic systems to make farms everywhere more profitable, more efficient, safe, and environmentally friendly. Antimicrobial packaging, anti-bullying research, biodata capture and service design, biomimicry, grief therapy, sonic branding, wellness architecture. Why these specific fields? These are sacrificial examples, but they're also major growth verticals. And two, they dovetail with some of the analog trades from the past. And three, they can be supported by existing university infrastructure at Al-Quds University, at Anaja University, Arab American University, and Birzeit. These are also fields that can attract a combination of VC, capital, foreign direct investment, and philanthropy. But I'll be the first to admit, this is a subject we expect and encourage our Palestinian colleagues to explore with experts in a companion series, Speculative Futures Palestine. Has to be done. Potential hosts, maybe the Palestinian pollster Khalil Shikaki, or the techno artist Sama Abdelhadi, whom we love, or even DJ Khaled. That would really be another one. But if you have a personal favorite, write to us. We'd love to get that series underway ASAP. How does political influence translate into economic terms? What's the essential deal or compromise? Simple, more service for more subsidies. This of course concerns the ultra-Orthodox. It's time to serve. Provide public goods and services. Care for the elderly, literacy programs, forestry services, anything the nation needs, not just prayer, in return for subsidies or tax consideration. Help reduce the costs incurred by the government when it comes to administering some state services, like disaster assistance, aid for the disabled, land management, beach cleaning, you name it. What we're saying is it's time to do more. So can this actually work? Well, some people say that all politics is war, adversarial, bloody. It's been called the world's most vulgar, cynical, sinister type of theater, where the audience loses far more than their temper or a steep ticket price. But there's another perspective. The politics of love are impregnable. That doesn't mean barren. It means unbeatable. Not love as an article of faith, but love as a political instrument. Jesus, MLK. But it only works if the champion or messenger truly believes it. And I do mean truly. If you love and aren't just trying to leverage the people for whom you're fighting, then anything is possible. Now we acknowledge, love has never been a popular movement. So said James Baldwin. And it's rare to see it used in practice because just about everyone can spot a fake. It's like Rada. People want Prada. But if you do feel it, and you really have to feel it in order to properly exhibit it, well, then it's nuclear. So, in that spirit, why did we even attempt to write this? Why are we talking about the politics of love? Well, in our defense, there's a scene from the original Ghostbusters that comes to mind. The mayor brings all the scattered characters into his office, Ray, Peter, Egon, the police, Walter Peck from the Environmental Protection Agency. And Bill Murray's character, Peter Venkman, says, this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportions. And the mayor asks, what do you mean biblical? And the boys all chime in with various warnings. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire, brimstone, rivers and seas boiling, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. And the mayor says, enough, I get the point. But what if you're wrong? 
And Bill Murray, Peter Venkman, says, if I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail, peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, and if we can stop this thing, Lenny, you'll have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. And the mayor smiles. And even the archbishop nods. So, if we're wrong, we're wrong. Nothing changes. But if we're right, if we're even a little bit right, and if we can adopt these approaches to improve the lives of 50 people, a hundred, a thousand, or more, isn't it worth the effort? Now what I think, separate from the we that I've used throughout the series, just me, I, is that it takes a little crazy. Gotta be a little crazy to pull this off. You certainly have to have a stomach for a bit of risk and a lot of love. But if you really do love these people, and I mean love all of the strangers that you encounter in outlying areas like Sterot and Cholon, Chadera, Ofakim, Daphna, Yarka, you name it, if you really love these people, well, then you can cultivate a following. Look at what Herzl was able to achieve with just a passport and a typewriter. But the politics of love don't work unless you genuinely feel it. But again, if that love is genuine and the determination to do better is real and to do more and to do it now, then there's no telling what you can do. And if not you, who? And if not now, when? So just before we sign off, we thought you might like to hear some of the early reactions to the series so far. The good, the bad, the ugly. Here's the good, from the editor-in-chief of one of Germany's largest daily newspapers. Quote, Good stuff. I can't figure out why Israeli diplomacy can't do this. Bureaucrats. That's the good. It's only one good. <laughs> Here's the bad. Or to put it more charitably, the constructive criticism that we received. This is from a noted academic based between Paris and New York. Kill the Ira Glass voice. I don't like that guy. I prefer your regular voice. Ira is slow and self-important, indulgent. You need to be more humble and lean. You're not an expert podcaster. You're just figuring this out. Don't put on a fake voice. Find your voice. Okay, well, I mean, this is my voice, but point taken. Uh, from my dad, don't use my voice. <laughs> All right, dad, I didn't. I didn't even imitate you in sharing that piece of critique. Here's another piece of constructive criticism from a famous movie producer in Los Angeles. You've set the hook, but no one is pulling the line. What the hell is this format? What happens next? Oh, and when do I clear as a guest? You don't clear as a guest. So we'd like to thank several people for their extensive research support. We'd like to thank Sam Feldman and Bossier Rosenblum, and of course, Jeremy Nadison for his enormous aid with developing the business model. For their expert editing, Georg Dietz at the New Institute and Noam Cohen, huge, 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 huge thank you. Thank you, Noam and Rachel Strumza. And for their kicking and quiet critique, Ashraf Zaytoun, and about a dozen other people, some of whom asked not to be named, but you know who you are, and we thank you. That is all. Send us um, your critiques and commentary when you get a chance. We're always keen to hear from people, whether it's love or loathsome critique, we're keen to hear it all. So signing off for the final time, at least in this series, from Berlin, it's your host, Michael Phillips Moskowitz, saying aloha and shalom. Shalom.